Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Ash Wednesday and for this season of Lent, a time for reflection, self-examination, and penitence. Lord, we pray that as we walk through this season, that the material in the screw tape letters would be something that would help draw us more and more into the things of your kingdom. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what we were listening to there was the hymn, The Day Thou Gavest, Lord, Has Ended. And um, one of the things about that hymn is that it has quite profound words. And the words are about how through all sorts of things that have happened and through every time zone and everything else like that, the church is worshiping the Lord everywhere, somewhere in the world, at any moment, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all through the ages. And so it is this unceasing chorus of praise that rises to the Lord. And part of the reason that we were listening to that is that the letter tonight is about the church. And in this particular hymn, and I'll send you the link when I send the email out, when you look at the words and think about what it's actually saying about the church, it is profoundly moving. And most of us suffer from a very impoverished doctrine of the church. And one of the things that I love about this letter 16 that we're going to do tonight is it is uh, a very salutary corrective to that. So uh, where that was, if you ever are in England, go to something, I don't care what it is, that's at the Royal Albert Hall because it is one of the great performance venues in the world. And this particular thing, one of the, the great beauties of England is that when there are national occasions of remembrance, which this was, this was Remembrance Day, which is why there were red poppies everywhere, they are set into an ecclesiastical context in a way that just does not happen here. So all of the government officials, all of the military leadership, all of them are in that service. And right before what we watched, they sang a very long extended version of How Great Thou Art. So it is, it's just very different. But this, The Day Thou Gavest Lord Has Ended, is a great hymn about the church. So if you don't know it, um, I have done you a big favor by introducing you to it, but I would commend it to your reflection um, as you go through uh, the week. So uh, let's start with our scripture verse. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, 
and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And I can't resist, since it's Ash Wednesday, to give a little sermonette about this. Uh, but what, just the one thing I would commend to you to think about with that is how very proactive that is. Stand and take up are the things that are repeated over and over again. And you can either have Lent be something that just sort of washes by on the way to Easter, or you can be proactive about engaging it. And if you are proactive about engaging it, engaging scripture, engaging worship, uh, engaging deeper fellowship during these 40 days, it will make the celebration of Easter something unlike anything you have ever experienced before. End of sermonette. So, again, why are we studying this book, Lessons on Understanding the Battle? Our culture tells us we're not in a battle, that everything's great, all viewpoints are fine, and tolerance is the great virtue. Uh, But Christians understand that we are in a battle. And so we need lessons on thinking Christianly, developing a Christian worldview, a framework for life that is rooted in our Christian faith, uh, understanding the psychology of temptation. Uh, these letters are brilliant on that. And then lessons on habits to cultivate that deepen faith in Christ. One of the themes that we've seen over and over and over again in this book is that most of us live in our head way too much particularly when it comes to our spiritual life. And we have all of these intentions. It's like the uh, New Year's resolution factory uh, where we make all these resolutions and we think about them, but we don't ever actually get around to carrying out any of them. And what we've seen in these letters is that that's one of Satan's favorite ploys to just get us to be thinking all of these really deep thoughts of things that we might do that might change the world but then we don't do anything and so the result is we fail to live a boldly christian life we live an anemic christian life we wonder why we don't experience joy and peace and overflowing gratitude Uh, but we are we are stuck in our heads because we haven't developed habits to match our worldview. So if you're looking for something to read for Lent, besides what Mark just talked about, uh, I would highly recommend Justin Early's The Common Rule. Uh, Like Mark's sermon, a lot of what's in that book is derived from ancient spiritual practice and some of the monastic traditions. And there are many practices in there that if you begin to build them into your daily schedule will cause you to suddenly start realizing that you are part of the kingdom of God. So uh, it is very worthwhile. So I'm going to go really quickly for our review tonight, since we're having a shorter class, 
But the first of these habits uh, from letter 12, being aware of your spiritual trajectory. This is very similar to what Mark was talking about tonight. Taking stock on a regular basis of the direction your life is going. Every day, really, is a good time to do that. But one of the things that is so important is that when you are living your life, you need to establish checkpoints to see, am I moving closer to the things that I say are my goals, or am I moving farther away from them? Because obviously, if you're moving farther away from them, and you want to achieve those goals, something needs to change. But if you don't ever take stock, that doesn't happen. The second thing, when you experience dim uneasiness spiritually, pray that God would open your eyes and lead you to any needful repentance. For many of us, when we experience dim uneasiness spiritually, we just sort of shove that away and don't pay any attention to it. Thirdly, when you experience reluctance to enter God's presence, remind yourself of the truth of Scripture expressed in the parable of the prodigal son. And I would go a step further with this. If that's an issue for you, there are some really wonderful masterwork classic paintings of the prodigal son, and those can be an excellent thing to meditate on while you are reading that passage to get a grip on how proactive God's love for you is. And then fourthly, invest in healthy and outgoing activities that lead to joy and avoid isolation. And then the truths about spiritual warfare, be aware of the power of nothing is used by the devil. So often we think the devil is going to tempt us with something really spectacularly wicked. Um, He's much more likely to just want us to squander our time um, scrolling through social media. Uh, And then also, Satan is much more likely to rely on a slow and gradual turning than any spectacular sin. And then letter 13, continuing on some of these same themes, as soon as you become aware you've strayed, repent and return to the Lord. Embrace real pleasures that focus your heart and mind on beauty, truth, and goodness. The stream of things that occupy our time things that we use to fill up the space in our life, if you put them through the filter of beauty, truth, and goodness, you may find that they are pretty empty in terms of those things. So again, if you want that to change, you have to change some things. Thirdly, cultivate those pleasures and gifts that are part of God's design for you. Um, last week, this was such a great coincidence. I wish I could say I planned it that way. But when we were talking about Eric Little and Chariots of Fire and all that, it was actually the feast day of Eric Little last week. Um, in the Anglican Communion, there's now a day of celebration for Eric Little's legacy. Um, but for those of you that have never seen the movie Chariots of Fire, please watch it. Uh, it's so good. And, of course, this seems when Little, the 1924 Olympian, who's a missionary to China, is telling his sister, who thinks he shouldn't be a runner, that he is going to go to China, and she's so excited. But then he says, but I'm not going yet, because God has made me fast. And when I run, I can feel his pleasure. And that gifting that we have, when we live into those gifts, it's wonderful. I'm just going to pick on Pat Gould for a minute here, since she's not here. Pat Gould is our organist choir master, 
If you have never been in a place where you can watch Pat when she's conducting a piece of music that she really likes, she is the personification of someone who is finding joy and using her gifts. It is just contagious and irresistible. Um, fourthly, avoid seeking after worldly trends and fashions at the expense of what you truly love. Now, I lived in the 70s uh, when I was in high school. And those of you who are old enough to remember the 70s, that was one of the worst periods for hair and clothing in the history of mankind. And I fell into some of that. I fell into, you don't say a word. I fell into some of that. And it was not it was not because it was what I liked, it was because what other people said was cool. And we do that. We do that. And it's not good. It was totally awesome. <laughs> do it again. We'll talk later. Yes. And then the fifth thing, be proactive in forming new habits based upon repentance rather than wallowing in self absorption. And remember this letter talked about the whole idea of we become so focused on our crisis, our inner crisis. And so we wallow in it, and we think about it all the time, and we talk to everyone we know about it, and we fail to realize that we are making ourselves the center of the universe. And we've become so myopic in our perspective that we, we literally wallow. And the, the letter talks about how Screwtape loves that because when you are wallowing in your own stuff and you haven't actually repented, you're just feeling bad, um, you're not going to get anywhere. Um, again, some truths. God loves you enormously as an individual. And then secondly, the more you lean into your relationship with God, the more truly you will become your authentic self. Lewis does a lot of writing on that theme but it's based on the idea that God made you. God made you, and you are the only one like you. You are the only one with your gifts and your passions, your personality. And the more that you lean into the way that you were designed and created by your maker, the more joy you will have. And sort of the example of not doing that is if you are made to be a long-distance runner, and you are someone with great endurance, and you can carry on through that, but you decide that instead of doing that, you want to be a defensive back, um, you're going to get creamed every time because you don't have the right build for it, um, all of that. And so often we're like that. We reject God's design because we, we want to do something else for whatever reason that might be. So, letter 14, practice daily and hourly dependence on God. We are far too prone to the idea that of thinking of faith is like a door that we walk through. And once we've walked through it, we kind of just forget about it and everything's all good because now we got Jesus. Jesus, take the wheel. Um, but we are, we are not <clears throat> practicing the presence of God. We're not daily, hourly thinking about um, the fact that we belong to a different kingdom. And then cultivating and practicing true humility. Uh, again, in this letter, which has so much good stuff about humility, the idea is not that you're thinking, oh, I am a worm. Oh, I am a worm. 
I am a doormat, you know, all of those kinds of things. You're really not thinking about yourself at all. You're thinking about God and you're thinking about others, that humility is truly self-forgetfulness. And then right out of that, avoid narcissism. And there's that wallowing again. Um, when things show up over and over again in screw tape, that probably means those are some of Satan's favorite tactics. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever wallowed. Um, but it is, it is something that is a disease of our culture right now. And particularly because of the elevated levels of narcissism that we have, um, it is very easy to become self-obsessed. Um, fourthly, practice joyful celebration of wonder in others, in nature, in life that leads to gratitude. We are so inured to wonder. It is just really sad, and it's something that we need to cultivate. And I'm going to give a movie plug again because I hope this movie is going to come back at some point. But there's a movie called A Hidden Life, which thanks to Marshall I went to go see. And it is a movie that is just designed to make you see that the world is throbbing with wonder and beauty. It's not a movie that is a high-action movie, but it makes you... It's almost as if you can step out from the world and then look back into the world and see how incredibly beautiful it is and the riches of life. So I commend that to you. Um, and then also cultivate a high appreciation of the doctrine of creation. Um, the doctrine of creation is under major assault in our culture right now, in case you didn't notice that. Uh, but the whole idea about creation is that there's a creator. You can't have a creation without a creator. And so the more that you cultivate a high appreciation of creation and God's creative work and making all of what we see, all the beauty that's around us, that will turn your heart toward praise. And then from last week's letter, letter 15, consciously reject tortured fear and stupid confidence as states of mind. Uh, remember, all of this letter last week is about living in the present, the sacred present, this moment that we have been given and not always being working towards some time in the future when we can actually be alive, to remember that this sacred present is unbelievably important and that there are only two things that we should attend to. And attend for Lewis is a big, powerful word. It means to really focus in, to pay attention, to engage something. The eternity, that is the kingdom of heaven, and the present. But the problem for most of us is that we either want to live in the past and think about how great it was when this was true or that relationship was happening or whatever it might be, and we want to dwell in that and we're morose because that's over, or more likely, particularly if you're a young person, we live in constant anxiety about the future, that we are trying to get to a place where we think once we get it, then we'll be happy and we'll have permission to actually live a life. But we're sacrificing everything to try to get to that point that's over there somewhere. But the problem is that point keeps moving farther and farther out. And there's a great quotation from Jim Carrey 
y'all know who Jim Carrey is. Uh, Jim Carrey, who said he wished that every person in their 20s could get everything they ever dreamed of, all of the wealth, all of the happiness, all of the possessions, all of the relationship stuff, the fame, everything else, and they could get it all when they're 23 because then they would realize that it doesn't matter and that it doesn't satisfy and that you've accomplished all of that and it's empty. Because he said so many people just waste their lives thinking if they can get to that point, then suddenly happiness is going to burst upon them. Um, Again, thirdly, proactively live in the present, the only place where freedom and actuality are offered. Actuality is really being, this is a little bit of a tautology, present in the present. So uh, you're in the present moment, but you're fully there. You're engaged with it. You understand the wonder and the joy and the beauty of what's happening while you're experiencing it. Fourthly, cultivate gratitude and love. And again, we tend to think gratitude and love are feelings that we have to wait until, you know, the sky's blue and the car's gas tank is full and there's no traffic on 17 and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And then we can be grateful. But what we forget is that the scriptures teach us that gratitude and love are acts of the will. They are acts of the will. And so, therefore, they can be cultivated. We can choose them. Fifthly, work hard for the good of posterity, but trust God for the results and dwell in the moment with patience and or gratitude. Again, this is working hard. Lewis talks about um, the scriptural view uh, that work is good, but that when you stress about it all the time, And when you, at the end of the day, you take it home with you and it's all that you're consumed with, that is not the way that it's supposed to be. Sixth, pray for virtues to meet what challenges may lie ahead. This is something that I had never really thought about until I read this letter because we don't really think too much about what the challenges are that lie ahead for most of us because they're sort of amorphous. Um, But praying that God would build virtues into you now that would enable you to meet whatever those challenges are um, sounds like a very good idea. And then the last thing, embrace natural happiness as a good thing. You'll remember that little last line in letter 15, but why should the creature be happy? (laughs) And basically what Screwtape is saying is any happiness, any ordinary happiness, like just a few minutes ago, eating I was eating an egg salad sandwich. I don't ever have egg salad. We don't ever make it at home. But it was really good. It was just a really simple, really good thing. And those kinds of pleasures are things that are part of natural happiness. And I could give you a whole lecture on Tolkien and the Shire and the Hobbits and how they are the perfect exemplar of this sort of natural happiness, but I won't. So that brings us to letter 16. Moving quickly, my dear Wormwood, you mentioned casually in your last letter that the patient has continued to attend one church and one only since he was converted and that he's not wholly pleased with it. May I ask what you are about? Why have I no report on the causes of his fidelity to the parish church? 
Do you realize that unless it is due to indifference, it is a very bad thing? Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The reasons are obvious. In the first place, the parochial organization should always be attacked because being a unity of place and not of likings, it brings people of different classes and psychology together in the kind of unity the enemy desires. The congregational principle, on the other hand, makes each church into a kind of club, and finally, if all goes well, into a coterie or faction. In the second place, the search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy wants him to be a pupil. What he wants of the layman in church is an attitude which may, indeed, be critical in the sense of rejecting what is false or unhelpful, but which is wholly uncritical in the sense that it does not appraise does not waste time in thinking about what it rejects, but lays itself open in uncommenting, humble receptivity to any nourishment that is going. You see how groveling, how unspiritual, how irredeemably vulgar he is. This attitude, especially during sermons, creates the condition most hostile to our whole policy in which platitudes can become really audible to a human soul. There's hardly any sermon or any book which may not be dangerous to us if it is received in this temper. So pray bestir yourself and send this fool the round of the neighboring churches as soon as possible. Your record up to date is not given us much satisfaction. The two churches nearest to him I've looked up in the office. Both have certain claims. At the first of these, the vicar as a man has been so long engaged and watering down the faith to make it easier for supposedly incredulous and hard-headed congregation that it is now he who shocks his parishioners with his unbelief, not vice versa. He has undermined many a soul's Christianity. His conduct of the services is also admirable. In order to spare the laity all the difficulties, he has deserted both the lectionary and the appointed psalms and now, without noticing it, revolves endlessly round the little treadmill of his 15 favorite psalms and 20 favorite lessons. We are thus safe from the danger that any truth not already familiar to him and to his flock should ever reach them through scripture. But perhaps the patient is not quite silly enough for this church, or not yet. At the other church, we have Father Spike. The humans are often puzzled to understand the range of his opinions, why he's one day almost a communist, and the next not far from some kind of theocratic fascism, <laughs> one day a scholastic, and the next prepared to deny human reason altogether, one day immersed in politics, and the day after declaring that all states of us world are equally under judgment. We, of course, see the connecting link, which is hatred. The man cannot bring himself to teach anything which is not calculated to mock, grieve, puzzle, or humiliate his parents and their friends. A sermon which such people would accept would be to him as insipid as a poem which they could scan. There is also a promising streak of dishonesty in him. We are teaching him to say the teaching of the church is, when he really means, I'm almost sure I read recently in Maritain or someone of that sort. But I must warn you that he has one fatal defect. He really believes. And this may yet mar all. But there is one good point which both these churches have in common. They are both party churches. 
I think I warned you before that if your patient can't be kept out of the church, he ought at least to be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean on really doctrinal issues. About those, the more lukewarm he is, the better. And it isn't the doctrines on which we chiefly depend for producing malice. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say mass and those who say holy communion, when neither party could possibly state the difference between, say, Hooker's Doctrine and Thomas Aquinas's in any form which would hold water for five minutes. And all the purely indifferent things, candles and clothes and whatnot, are an admirable ground for our activities. We've quite removed from men's mind what that pestilent fellow Paul used to teach about food and other unessentials, namely that the human without scruples should always give in to the human with scruples. You would think they could not fail to see the application. You would expect to find the low churchman genuflecting and crossing himself, lest the weak conscience of his high brother should be moved to irreverence, and the high one refraining from these exercises, lest he should betray his low brother into idolatry. And so it would have been but for our ceaseless labor. Without that, variety, without that, the variety of usage within the Church of England might have become a positive hotbed of charity and humility. Your affectionate uncle, <laughs> Scrutin. So a little bit of background for those of you that are new to Anglicanism. A couple of things he's talking about in here. One is the parochial system, the parish system, which is the way Charleston actually was laid out. You know, we have St. John's Parish, which is John's Island, St. James Parish, which is James Island, St. Andrew's, St. Philip, St. Michael's. And originally the idea was that there was a church in the middle of the area, and that was where everybody went. And that was the way it was in Lewis's day in England as well. But what happened is that people, particularly in the 19th century, the Church of England developed sort of a split in worship practice. So there was the what's called the low church, which is mostly evangelicals, not a high emphasis on sacraments, high emphasis on preaching. And then the Anglo-Catholic or high church um, sometimes called smells and bells, um, where there's incense and bells and a lot of other things going on and a very high emphasis on the sacraments and ecclesiality, but not so much on scripture. And so Lewis is saying that is a great thing because they can exploit that and make those people hate each other. Um, and so because of that, if your parish, if you were a low church person and your parish went high church, then you would not go there anymore and go somewhere else. So that's kind of what he's talking about with all of that. So some habits to annoy the devil out of this letter. The first thing, commit to faithful attendance and involvement in a church. Now this may not seem radical, but in our culture today, this is radical. One of the most peculiar and bizarre things that has happened in the Christian faith is that you will meet Tons of people today who say, I am a Christian, but I don't go to church. <laughs> and, the, and the interesting thing about that is that if you look at church history, that whole idea is like utterly unknown. It's sort of as if you tried out for the football team and you made the football team and then you went home, and you didn't ever go back, you never went to a practice, you never went to a game, but you tell people, I'm on the football team. 
Are you on the football team? (laughs) So, anyway, committing to faithful attendance and involvement in the church is something that is just assumed in the scriptures. There's no command thou shalt go to church because it's just assumed. All Every conversion all through the New Testament, people immediately become part of the body of believers. So this is hugely important. Um, there's this great verse from Hebrews, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then all of Paul's letters, they're all written to the church All the believers in that area doesn't send 15 different letters to different individuals that are having worship while they're fishing or (laughs) out on the ski boat or in the deer stand or wherever they might be. Um, They they are in church. So this idea of being involved in the church, and there are 400,000 excuses about, well, the church is full of hypocrites. Sorry, you're a hypocrite too. All of us are hypocrites. Uh, One of the things that we need to do is to recover an understanding that the church is essential to growing as a Christian. The second habit here, cultivate humility and a teachable spirit while seeking to build New Testament community. Uh, Paul says this so beautifully here in Ephesians. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You might have remembered in the letter that we just read, there are so many places where he talks about the fact that when we come to church, our posture should be that of a student or a pupil rather than a theater critic. And even when it comes in, uh, this is, uh, I have to admit, a little bit of self-interest here, so disclaimer for that. Um, But if you're listening to a sermon that's being preached, even if you don't like it, the best thing you can do is to use the old adage, chew up the meat and spit out the bones. Look for what there is in the sermon that you can learn from, because there may well be something. You might not like it. You might be one of the people that sits in the back. There are people here who do that. No. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, and that's trying to tell us. It seems like the watch has stopped because you've been going on for so long. Um, so, uh, but all of that to say, what we need to do is to cultivate an attitude of humility when it comes to these kinds of things. And we need to pray for the leaders in our community, which here would be the clergy and the vestry. We need to pray for those people because we, we're such consumers. We have such a consumer mentality that rather than spend time praying for them, we would much rather um, tell them what we believe God needs to do with the church and what they're doing wrong and all that. And sometimes there's a need for that. Don't get me wrong. 
But it's important that before we get to that point, we are committed to praying for them. Thirdly, seek after the whole counsel of God with a high view of Scripture. This is one of the things I love about the Anglican Church. Because those of you who are new to Anglican, Anglicanism may not know that the lectionary, which is what he was talking about earlier in there, the lectionary takes the Bible and divides it into a series of readings where every three years we're going all the way through Scripture. And you may have noticed here we preach on the lectionary. We don't do sermon series except sometimes on Wednesday nights. And the reason for that is we believe that Scripture is the whole counsel of God. And it is not up to us to say that some parts of it don't matter. So that is one of the beauties of Anglicanism uh, that's been part of our heritage for years and years and centuries of having that lectionary that keeps us um, focused after the whole counsel of God. We also have a high view of Scripture. Uh, One of the things that... um, and all of this uh, unpleasantness, shall we say, between the national church and the local diocese. Uh, one of the best explanations I have heard about what, why the battle, and there's a little video about that, but uh, one of the things they said in that video is that the best way to explain the battle is with the words over and under. And the question is, are you over scripture do you believe that you are the authority and you can say which scripture to disregard, which scripture um, is no longer valid, um, and that you can interpret scripture um, as you choose based on your own experience? Or are you under scripture? Are you under the authority of scripture and the way that the church, <coughs> big C church, has understood that scripture to be interpreted for millennia? Um Fourthly, encourage clergy leadership that weds the proclamation of true biblical belief and Christian love. And he does a great job talking about that with Father Spike and the, the other guy that he doesn't give a name to. Uh, but the idea here is that you want to encourage your clergy, whatever church you're in, to be faithful to Scripture, but also to be powerfully loving. And the problem is that the church always gets stuck at one extreme or the other. We go all the way. We love everybody so much that we can't speak any truth. Or we speak truth, but we do it in such a harsh way that there's no love in it. And scripture is very clear that we're to be in the middle there speaking the truth in love. And then fifthly, hold fast to truth, but lightly to preferences. This is all the stuff about candles, investments, and all those kinds of things that people can get in a big fidget about. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day whose mother is a longtime flower guild lady at an Episcopal church in Virginia. And they are some of the saints of the church, the ladies that do all of those flowers. But when she came to St. Philip's on Easter this past year, she was totally blown away because she had been taught all her life you can only use white flowers on Easter and she came in on Easter morning she went because there was color everywhere and I mean she was literally shell shocked she was but about halfway through the service she realized this is beautiful 
and she really liked it. But that's the kind of thing that people can get wigged out about in church that has absolutely nothing to do with the gospel. And there's this great old saying, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. And in all things, charity. And there's that verse from 1 Corinthians that's so important. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. It's fine for us to have opinions and preferences and all that, but we need to hold them lightly and hold them in love. So that was a very quick trip through letter 16. I commend reading this one slowly, read it out loud. Um, and when I send the email um, with the link, think about that song with through the filter of what we've just talked about, and it will be a beautiful thing. And our last quotation, our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your church. We thank you for the privilege that it is to be part of a body of believers who are seeking to follow you, Lord Jesus. Father, we confess to you that we let a lot of other things get in the way of our commitment to you and our commitment to your body. Lord, we pray that you would help us to wash our thinking about the church through the lens of your word and the practice of Christians for centuries, and that through that we would be drawn into a deeper and stronger relationship with you. Lord, as we walk this pathway of Lent, we pray that we would walk by your side, and that as we do that, that you would lead us into both truth and love. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. That one.